morning again. I am so glad that you made it. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't planning on canceling service at all, and, and I started getting calls and started looking at the roads, and, and I thought, man, first service is going to be really dangerous getting here. So I thought, maybe we can cancel first service and still have second service. And we did, and it worked out really good, and you guys are here, so the Lord bless you for it, and it's awesome. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 50. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and the guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 50. As you're turning there, before we get to our text, I want to share with you uh, really a, a God story from last week. It was just an amazing time. For those of you that don't know, my son Matthew... I graduated from Marine Corps boot camp this last week, and uh, it was an amazing graduation here. I know Tyler also graduated as well from Air Force boot camp, and just an exciting time to see our kids and to see the, the, the changing that, that has taken place. Well, uh, many of you know Ray Glenn. He's our 83-year-old Marine rep from our church, and he's the guy that recruited Matthew when he was five years old, and so... Um, <laughs> He actually came out, him and his wife Vicky came out to the graduation to be a part of that. And it was just very, very cool. And so uh, I get a call from Ray, because uh, we haven't met up yet, and, and he, he tells me that he went there the day before the graduation, uh, looking to find out where he was going to go and where he was going to sit with the graduation. And he's heading towards this building on base, and, and they're supposed to have some information for him. And as he's standing there, uh, four of these uh, Marine officers are getting out of this SUV. Well, one thing led to another, and before you know it, that they're talking to Ray, and they're talking to these officers. He's, you know, he's spending like 20, 30 minutes with these guys, and, and going on and on, and, and he gets a special coin from this general that he's handed to him, and, and, and so Ray says, well, I'm, I'm out here with my pastor, and, and his son is, is, you know, graduating from boot camp, and, you know, his wife's in a wheelchair, and, and they said, oh, we'll take care of it for you. He said, we want you to sit in the viewing station right there, the, 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 on the, the grounds there, the, the parade grounds right there. Uh, uh, the, the, there you know, it, it's reserved for, you know, for the officers and uh, for the Brigadier General Ryan Heritage. All these, they're all the, the guys are right there. So we get to the graduation. We go to get in our seats. And on the back of the seat has got our name. It says Humphrey on it. I'm going, okay. This is like, wow. I'm going, Man, and, and, and you know, each one of the, the, the graduates, they march right in front of you and they, they salute because all the dignitaries are right there and sitting next to us. And we're going, <laughs> yeah, this is cool, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and, uh, and so it was just, just very, very cool and the whole thing was over and, and Ray, you know, Ray's in his dress blues. He shows up in his dress blues and, and you know, he's got like five chevrons or stripes, you know, we called them stripes, we were corrected, chevrons, you know, on, and uh, for all these terms, you know, how long he's been in service, stuff like that. He says, uh, uh, he says to me, I, I want to take Matt down to, to meet the general. I said, all right. So he goes over, talks to his liaison and says, you know, I, I got, you know, uh, Matt here and, and we want permission to, to, to meet with Brigadier General Heritage. Matt was the only new Marine that got to meet with the general and, and talk to him face to face. And we got a picture of it. I don't know if we can come out on it. So there's Ray on the left, Matt on the right, and the general is just instructing Matt, this is what you can encounter. And, and what you don't see is Matt's hands in the back, they're shaking. <laughs> I'm talking to a general here. <laughs> you know, I got this all right, everything's right, you know, it's just, 
yes sir, no sir, yes sir, you know, and Ray's just, you know, grinning from ear to ear, and, and uh, we are just blessed beyond measure that, um, to see the general taking the time out and talking to Matt and just encouraging him, and it was very, very cool. And we got to thinking about it after it was all over, and Matt told me a little story, but when he first got there, about the second week, he's standing in, in line, and, and there was a kid next to him that was really having a hard time with the, with the core and, and wanted to drop out. And, and so Matt says, you gotta, you gotta stay with us. You gotta keep going. Well, Matt got caught talking. And, uh, you know, they had Marines, you know, jumped all his face and, and all that. And, and, uh, and so he kind of got in trouble and he got, you know, he would watch out for the next week. And, and I think that really lost him some opportunities for, for honors in his platoon because he did so well in everything that he did. I mean, ranked up at the top with everything he did. And I got to thinking about God's word and where it says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. I thought, man, that was it. I mean, God just I mean, put us in the viewing station. I mean, we're, we're sitting there with all this stuff going on, and God just said, I just want to bless you guys right now and just see what God's doing. So all that to say, it was very, very awesome, and all praise goes to our God because it's a God story. That's what God has done. So... Thus, the title of my message this morning is The Greatness of Our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and uh, that you've given it to us to teach us and instruct us and in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And now, Lord, as we look to you this morning, we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have to say to us today. We pray also if there's Anyone that has joined us that does not yet have a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, they're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch their hearts today? But we commit our time to you. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'm learning in, in the military, you know, there's, there's different ranks and I'm kind of learning what they're all about. And every chevron, you know, every stripe, each pin, patch, or medal represents something they've accomplished great in their lives and, and, and to give them this ranking. And, and I kind of looked it up in the Marines. You have the lieutenant, the captain, the major, the colonel, and the general. And, and, and each one, you know, over you as an enlisted man or woman, you, depending on your rank, you have to give them respect and you, you know, you salute them. And, you know, as you're walking down, if you see someone with a higher rank than men, you got to show them that respect. And, and I got to thinking about our text this morning. In these verses that we're looking at, we're going to see Jesus as our commanding officer. Man, he's got the highest rank that there is. I mean, he's our commanding general of, of generals. And, and if you take, if you're taking notes, we're going to see six things that Jesus outranks. Six things that Jesus outranks. Three of them we looked at briefly last summer and three more last summer, last week. <laughs> Seems like a summer ago, but last week and three more we'll look at this week. Uh, starting in, in verse six, we saw that Number one, Jesus outranks the temple. Remember the situation there, the Pharisees, the, like the worldly people today, they're always looking for something to criticize Jesus over. And, and, and in verses 1 and 2, uh, um, uh, of last week you saw that they were criticizing the Lord because his disciples were plucking the heads of grain off of the week on the Sabbath day. And, and according to the Talmud, you know, they had 24 chapters written on how to obey the law, and, and they said it was not lawful for them to eat on, on the Sabbath to which the Lord then gave reasons why, scriptures why it was lawful for them in verses 3 through 8, to eat. Saying how when David, you know, went into the house of God himself, he ate it along with his, 
his, his men with them and, and, and they were allowed to eat. And it's there that we read in verse 6 that Jesus said, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's trying to tell them, listen, you guys don't know who you're talking to here. This is one greater than the temple. So that's the first chevron, you might say. The first stripe on Jesus' shirt. He meant he outranks the temple. Second chevron that we see, stripe, Jesus outranks the Sabbath. Number two, our second point. See, Jesus said to these, these uh, religious leaders, those steeped in tradition, those who were holding traditions equal to the word of God, Jesus said to them in verse 8, For the Son of Man is, even Lord, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then he proceeded to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. He outranks the Sabbath. They just didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus is God, the one who gave the Jewish people the Sabbath in the first place. He's the one that instituted it so that when Jesus made this statement in verse 8, make no mistake about it, he was unmistakably claiming to be God come in the flesh. And that's why in verse 14, they, the, the, they immediately plotted to kill him. But as we looked at last week, for the Christian, every day is a Sabbath day. Every day we need to be putting the Lord first in our life, serving him. But then we looked as well that Jesus is greater than the devil. The, the third chevron, Jesus outranks the devil. Look at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed them so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Kind of reminds me of the story about a Christian lady who lived next door to an atheist. When she prayed, she prayed about everything. And when she prayed, she often prayed pretty loud so that the atheist who lived next door could hear her prayers and, and, and in the summer, you know, especially when the windows were open. And of course, he thought that she was crazy talking to God. There is no God. Why does she carry on? And it's not going to do her any good. And, and one evening, the atheist heard this Christian lady praying for groceries because she had run out. And, and she said, Lord, I trust you. You can do anything. And I know you're going to provide my every need. And then she listed the groceries that she needed and said, in Jesus' name. Well, after that, the atheist heard that and he thought, I'm going to fix her. And he went to the grocery store and brought all the groceries that she mentioned in her prayer list, put them in bags, knocked on the door, and then hid behind the bush. The lady opened the door, saw the groceries. She said, praise the Lord, I knew you would provide. The atheist jumps out of the bushes and goes, you crazy Christian lady. God didn't get those groceries for you. I bought them for you, you nut. When she heard that, she got even more excited, jumped in there, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He didn't get it. He said, I don't, I don't get it. How come you're so excited? She smiled and said, I knew God was going to provide the groceries. I just didn't think he was going to make the devil pay for it. <laughs> I like the way she thinks. Well, that could be a little tagline for how everything is going to shake out eventually in eternity. Listen, in the end, God is going to get the glory and the devil is going to pay. Now, until then, the, the devil seems to have quite a bit of freedom. And you might say he's on a leash, but I, I wonder often why the leash is so long. And, and, and we're, we're caught in the crossfires, in an activity between heaven and hell. I read a Gallup organization poll that 70% of Americans believe in hell and believe in the devil. But only half believe the devil is a literal being. The other half say he's imaginary, a figment of one's imagination, or simply an analogy of evil, a metaphor of evil. But then we turn to the scriptures, and we see how Jesus spoke about the devil, and we get some very interesting, very different findings from than Gallup's poll of what, what Americans' opinions are. Jesus spoke 
of the devil as a literal being. In Luke chapter 10, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was there when it happened. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired that he might sift you like wheat. Well, I certainly would not want to hear those words. Tom, Satan is like, oh, no, 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 no. The Lord says that, but Peter, I'll pray for you. D.L. Moody once said, I believe in the devil and believe in him for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible says he's real. Number two, because I've done business with him. And if you've done, ever done business with him, there's no question in your mind that he's out to try to kill, to steal, and destroy our lives. But I think we make a mistake when it comes to Satan. Even as Christians, we, we, we sometimes make the mistake and almost deny his activity. We forget that there's a spiritual battle taking place. And we can get all caught up in our, our own little Christian camp and our Christian activities. And we forget that there's a really a spiritual battle of forces taking place. And, and I think that that's what, on one hand, Satan would want. He would want you to deny. He would want you to forget. He would want you to, to fall asleep and, and not really think that he's out there. Someone once said, the devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping saint. Wake up. Don't sleep. We're in a very real battle. The outcome has already been determined. We win in the end. But in the meantime, there could be a lot of collateral damage. And remember what we looked at last time. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, the one that is in you outranks the one that is in the world. And proof of it was here as this blind man uh, was was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. But to me, it's an amazing when you read this story, amazing thing when you read the story because you just see how long-suffering our Lord is. Instead of rejoicing over the fact that, that a man with a withered hand was healed, instead of rejoicing over the fact that a man who was, was blind and mute and, and demon-possessed is, is, is set free, they accuse Christ of being in league with Satan. Verse 24 said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I mean, what gall! And Christ, as we looked at last time, points out that this argument is not logical. It would mean that Satan is fighting against himself and he wouldn't do that. Where is the logic in that? If I'm being empowered by Satan, then why am I casting out demons that work for Satan? It doesn't make any sense. Now, there were a few Pharisees like Nicodemus who said of Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Thank God for them. But, but you know, if it were me and I were the Lord, man, I'm done with you guys. I'm, a, I'm casting out demons by the devil. Get out of here. You'll be done. So, our Lord outranks the temple, outranks the Sabbath, outranks the devil. And after Jesus is accused of doing the works of God through the power of the devil, this is when Jesus gives them this strong warning about blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven Man, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. You know, you hear this all the time. And he says, a pastor, you do. Oh, no, I, am, I may have committed the unforgivable sin. I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I, I don't can I be I don't know. Have I done that? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Let me say no, no, 
And no, at least not yet. Let's understand this. First, understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, <coughs> excuse me, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So here's the, the principal job of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus cast out a demon, the Spirit was testifying that Jesus was, was king over all creation. Now the Pharisees heard Jesus teach and rejected his wisdom. They seen his miracles and sat back in this kind of smug indifference and, and defiance. They were there at the baptism of Jesus, heard the Father speak. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But they turned a deaf ear to heaven's testimony. So they, they, they've read the Father's endorsement of Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament prophecy and yet once more denied the truth about Jesus. So in other words, since the Pharisees rejected the Son and rejected the Father, there's only one other voice left for them to hear and that was the voice of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and Jesus is telling us here, <coughs> excuse me, that we can read the words of the Father in Scripture. We can hear the words of Jesus preached from the pulpit and still turn a deaf ear. It's not good, but it's understandable. See, that the Bible teaches that apart from Jesus, Jesus, a man's spiritual eyes are blinded. Yet when the Spirit probes the depths of his being and, and lifts his spiritual blinders, if only for a moment, yet they still reject the truth, then there's no excuse. Here's the idea. You, you can reject the Father's witness, but there's still the Son. You can reject Jesus, but there's still the Holy Spirit's testimony. But once you reject the Spirit's witness of Jesus, there's no hope. Heaven will grow silent. It's been said that the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the hound of heaven, trying to, to reach our hearts. Therefore, the unpardonable sin today, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to reject the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the gospel that the Holy Spirit brings. That God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take upon Himself the penalty for all of our sins. If we refuse that provision and offer our forgiveness, then there's nothing left for that person except for judgment. So the only unpardonable sin, the only thing that God cannot forgive, <clears throat> is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is not yet done with these Pharisees. Now look at verse 34. He says, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <clears throat> a good man, out of the good treasures of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, certainly, verse 34 didn't win Jesus any points with the Pharisees. Brood of vipers, he calls them. Yeah, and he got that from John the Baptist. He called them the same thing, and he was right. <clears throat> See, calling them a brood of vipers, a brood uh, simply means children or offspring. A modern translation might be, you sons of slimy snakes. And, and now, if Jesus says that to you, then look out. He says, how can you being evil, that's the kind of tree they were, how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the venomous words that were brought forth from their mouth were all because of their, their wicked, venomous thoughts in their own hearts. 
The fruit was what they said. The real tree was their wicked heart that was against Jesus Christ. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's been said the bucket of the mouth reveals the wellspring of the heart. In other words, you can tell what kind of things are in a person's heart by the things that come out of their mouths. It's like the story I read about the National Transportation Safety Board that recently divulged that they had covertly funded a project with the U.S. automakers for the past five years whereby the automakers were installing black boxes in the four-wheel drive pickup trucks in an effort to determine in fatal accidents the circumstances in the last 15 seconds before the crash. They were surprised to find out that in 45 of the 50 states, the last words of the drivers in 61.2% of the fatal crashes were, Oh my God, God help me, or Jesus save me. Only the states of Oklahoma, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and Arkansas were different, where 89.3% of the final words were, Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> you guys thought it was a real story, didn't you? <clears throat> Have you ever stopped to listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth? I mean, I wonder how surprised we'd be if we had our words played back. By, by the time you get home at the end of the day, all of a sudden there's a playback of everything you said all throughout your day. I think it would, it would it'd convict us a little bit. See, what our words express dissatisfaction, anger, bitterness, complaining, pride, judgment, criticism. Or our words express understanding and hope and encouragement and praise and patience and humility. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here when he says, Every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of in the day of judgment. If you're a believer, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've come to faith in His Son, then the price for the penalty of your sin has been taken care of. No matter what sins that you've committed, including the sin of speech, they are atoned for. So it's not like Jesus is going to go, well, I remember the one day when you said this bad word, okay? You've got to do like five years of hard labor before you come to heaven. That's not the way it works. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. So the penalty of that sin has been taken care of. However, there's something called the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat, as the Apostle Paul talks about it in the book of Corinthians. He talks about the rewards that we'll get for this life that we lived upon this earth. Or lack of rewards from the Lord. So if you're rewarded for your obedience to the Lord, you're going to lose rewards for your disobedience. Again, it's not salvation by works. You're saved by grace. It's free. You're going to heaven. But there in heaven, you're going to get these different degrees of rewards handed out to you. The Bible is very clear about that. So by your own words, you can lose some of those rewards that you have gotten, but you're still going to be in God's heaven. You'll still be in eternity with Him. See, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, He's talking about those who would have indicted, uh, uh, really, Jesus, and those that were, were basically saying that, that you know, Satan is controlling Jesus. He's saying, it by your words, you're going to be justified. By your words, you're going to be condemned. Listen, God can judge people solely upon the words that come out of their mouths. For God to condemn a person, all he has to do is play back the audio. Man, here you go. Here's the clip. Listen, man, you've never once... Confess me, Lord. You've never, in fact, look what you've said. You, the times that you've rejected me. For God to justify a person, there's another audio clip, all he's got, all audio clip that he's got to play. Romans 8, or rather Romans 10, verse 8 through 10 says this. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Justified by your mouth, you confess the Lord. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Jesus says every word that will be spoken will be accounted for. Now, this brings us to our fourth stripe, or, or chevron. So our Lord outranks the temple, outranks the Sabbath, definitely outranks the devil. And now number four, Jesus outranks Jonah. And before we read this, if you've ever had someone say to you, well, I don't know if I can ever believe that story about Jonah and the well. I mean, it's, it's a fish story. What proof do you have? Tell them right here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus said it, would, it happened. His words are enough for me. Now, also, verse 38 proves that all of Jesus' warning he had given these guys completely just sailed over their heads. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I mean, Jesus had already performed countless signs and wonders. I mean, he's given them enough signs to believe, and the Pharisees, they're accusing him of being powdered by the devil. Now they want more miracles. Well, show something else. They weren't seekers of truth. They were ambulance chasers. They were sensationalists. They wanted miracles for miracles' sake. Jesus was not about to cater to their carnality. He says, the only sign that we're going to, I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Look at verse 40. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection were the only other sign he would supply. Just as Jonah was 72 hours in the fish's belly, Jesus would be 72 hours in the heart of the earth. And we know from Ephesians chapter 4 that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended into Hades, the Old Testament abode for the dead. After Jesus was crucified, he went to Hades to preach to the Old Testament believers trusting in, in his salvation. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And after three days at that well, you know, vomited Jonah up on the beach and, and he preached in Nineveh and the Ninevites repented from their rebellion. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. You read that and you go, well, what does that mean for Nineveh to rise up in judgment? Does that mean that the people who lived in Nineveh at the time of Jonah are going to be standing on the sidelines when the generation of Jesus' day is judged? Man, it seems that that's what it seems like it's saying to me. See, here's, here's the point Jesus was making. Jonah was a reluctant, unenthusiastic, flawed prophet with a message that offered no hope. Basically, 40 days and Nineveh was going to be overthrown. Yet on a massive scale, the Ninevites repented and turned from their sin and turned to God, one of the largest revivals in human history. And Jesus is saying, look, a greater than Jonah is here. I'm the creator of Jonah. I've come with a message of hope and you have rejected me. And then he tells them, no sign is going to be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now even today, people are looking for signs. But you don't need to go any further than than the the, the death of the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead three days later. I mean, think about this. Everyone after Jesus rose from the dead is able to see the the greatest sign that there ever was. The the physical, historical evidence and proof that Jesus is who he says he is and that he finished what he was sent to do. 
I think it was a, a man, a Christian recording artist, Don Francisco, for those of you that are older, had a song out proclaiming, He's alive, He's alive, He's alive, and I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. Kind of hokey, but, but the words are powerful. See, non-believers have their objections to the gospel. They have their questions. But at, at the end of the day, we all have proof. We all have proof. The third day is all the sign that we need that Jesus is, is the God-man, the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. Someone has given us a quick comparison of Jesus and Jonah. It goes like this. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus was the prophet. Jonah initially disobeyed. Jesus always obeyed. Jonah rose up from the sea. Jesus rose up from the dead. Jonah preached to Nineveh. Jesus preached everywhere. Jonah wanted those people to die. Jesus wants people to live. Jonah preached God's wrath and judgment. Jesus preached grace and mercy. So Jesus outranks Jonah. Number five, Jesus outranks Solomon. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, you may recall the story of the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, heard the stories about the wealth of Solomon and, and the wisdom of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. She wanted to go and see it for herself. She wanted to see him for herself. She meets him in person, sees the extent of his kingdom. She sits and asks him all these questions. She's got this whole list of questions, and she wants to ask Solomon. Every question she asks, he gives this perfect answer for so that when all is said and done, she's on her way, you know, she, after she's seen all this, she saw his kingdom, how happy everybody was, and how everything was, 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 and how there was peace and prosperity. And she says, you know what? All that I've heard about you, uh, I mean, was, was only half that was told me. And it's all true. It's all amazing. And so Jesus is saying here, like the people of Nineveh, like the Queen of Sheba, also will rise up in judgment against these people because a greater than Solomon has arrived. In other words, though there was this great wealth and wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom, the spiritual wealth of Jesus Christ far exceeds even that of Solomon. Yet you, these religious rulers, they're rejecting him. Solomon was a son of David, but Jesus was the greater son of David, the Messiah. And the Jews would not come to him even though he uh, traveled so much farther than a thousand miles to share this ultimate wisdom of God's plan to save sinners. Jesus is saying, man, you Pharisees, you're missing it. You're blind to all of this. So then Jesus outranks the temple, the Sabbath, the devil, Jonah, Solomon. Now before we get to our sixth and final point, Jesus, that Jesus outranks, Jesus says something very interesting. Look at verses 43 through 45. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through, a dry, through dried places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, you read that and go, what in the world is this talking about? But you see, Jesus is using this picture to communicate a great truth. He's pointing out the difference between reformation and regeneration. And these verses, as well as others, remind us that when we become the friend of God, we automatically become an enemy of the devil. There's, there's no compromise. There's no negotiation. Jesus will never uh, 
turn from his purpose to crush Satan under his feet, and Satan will never turn from his desire to attempt to defeat Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is saying these things to these Pharisees in response to their suggesting that Jesus was performing these miracles by the hand of the devil. And he's already given them the stern warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and they're continuing to misunderstand him because they didn't want to know the truth. There's a lot of people like that today. They're always finding something wrong with us as, as Christians. Don't you experience that? They'll always have something to hang their doubts on. You post something on, on social media about the Lord or the Bible, and, and that one friend that's going to come up against you would, would say, you know, what, 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 what the Bible says. You know, oh, yeah, well, your Bible says this, or, oh, I don't believe that. And they may be a good moral person, but they're lost. And they respond about something they know nothing about. Maybe you say something against abortion and you get some posts about how you, you Christians are all alike and how we don't understand. So you, you, you respond with a verse, well, the Bible says do not murder. And they, oh, uh, you know, they'll, they'll post, well, you know, the Bible's full of con- contradictions. You, you can't trust the Bible. And you say, okay, show me one. Well, I can't, but I, but I know they're there. Well, how do you know? Have you read, read the Bible? No, but, but I just know. See, they, they, they'll say there's contradictions in the Bible and they say they have problems with the Bible, but that's because they've never read the Bible. And, and, and it's not that they're evil people. They're just lost. They don't know. And many times, many of them are good moral people, but they're good moral people on their way to hell. And they're, they're trying to live a moral life without Jesus. And there's a problem with that. And that's why Jesus is giving this warning here in verse 43. He says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes to dry places seeking rest and finds none. Now, in that verse, there may be some insights into the psychology and the activity of, of demons, but that's not the point of the, the illustration. Demons may feel uncomfortable in dry places and be unable to rest wandering through them, but that doesn't mean we all be better off living in Arizona. That's not what it's saying here. Jesus is illustrating the state of Israel as a nation. And an unclean, uh, an unclean would remind us of the fact that this particular spirit he's speaking of is, is wicked. It's vile. And then verse 44, the, the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. So the, the house speaks of a person's life. Listen, before we were saved, before our conversion, in some way, shape, or form, we were all under the influence of the devil. Our lives, our body was His home, His domain. Scripture is clear about this. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Once you were dead, doomed forever because of your many sins, you used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature, we were born with an evil nature and we were under God's anger just like everyone else. We were all that way. Now granted, there were some that were more controlled by the devil than others. Some might be more you know, excessive in their abuses that they may engage in. But even the most moral man or woman prior to conversion is under the influence and control of Satan. And that's something that people just don't realize. Because the devil has many tricks up his sleeve. And so he drags some people down by drugs and alcohol or illicit sex and greed or materialism. But he also drags people down by, by way of morality and religion. And the things by, that appear were more noble from the outside, but, but in effect they're just the same because they're keeping you, they're keeping them people from God. 
So basically our text, our story, we have a house, a life that is being guarded by a demon who decides to go on vacation. He says, you know what, I'm not having any problem with this guy. I'm going to go you know, bother someone else and goes away. And, and, and so he leaves. And, and, and really the idea is of a person who thinks that he or she is, is, you know, is okay in this life. I'm in peace with God. I'm a good moral man. I don't really need God in my life. And everything's just good the way it is. But you see, this is the person we should be more concerned about than any other person. A person who is undisturbed in conscience. Those who are completely passive are the ones to be concerned about. A person who's, who's a, a non-believer and comes to the church and sits down through worship service and hears the message of God's Word and, and it doesn't affect them. They may say, well, that was nice. I, I like the jokes a little bit. and then, I mean, I'll go back with you again some other time. But they're not moved in any way, shape, or form. That's a person who's fitting this description here who basically uh, says, I'm fine without God. And, and, but the devil has him right where he wants him. But notice that after the devil or demon leaves, when he returns in verse 44, he finds the house has been cleaned up. It says it's been empty, swept, and put in order. So that really describes a person who's maybe made some changes in their lives. You know, you, you don't drink anymore, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't hang around with girls that do. And, and, and you say, well, I'm all cleaned up. And I'm ready to go. And, and maybe they go to a rehab clinic and get off drugs or alcohol. Or maybe they, they clean up their language a little bit. Maybe they try to be a better husband or better wife. They're not as blatant in their sin. But they've not had a new occupant come in yet. And maybe they become religious. But you see, if you just become religious for religious sake and you don't get born again, you're in a greater danger because that's religious deception, the worst kind of deception. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Your worst state is worse than before. If you just clean up the outside, you're not really born again, then you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then you're in real danger. I mean, look what happens next in verse 45. The demon comes back with seven of his creepy buddies. They all move in. The demon goes and comes back in verse 45 with seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Man, are you messed up. You're worse than, than when you began. That's a very dangerous place to be. Again, this is a reminder that until Christ is living on the inside of our lives, we are completely vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. And the latter state is worse than the first. It's interesting that the word there for to dwell means to settle down and be at home with. It's the same word that Paul used in the book of Ephesians uh, in his prayer for the believers that Christ would settle down and be at home in our hearts. So we have that choice. Is Christ, is he going to settle down and be at home in our hearts? Or are you going to let the devil settle down and be at home in your hearts? In, in this case, the devil prevailed because there was no new occupant. And he's just, Jesus is simply pointing out the difference between reformation and regeneration. Jesus is warning to the nation of Israel at that time. The nation had fallen in love with legalism. They, they fall in love with religiosity. And they were mistaken morality for spirituality. And he said, man, if you clean up the house on the inside but don't receive the life and love of God, you're just as empty. Let me say this. True spirituality involves more than an emptying out. It requires an opening up. It requires receiving life of the Spirit. Reform isn't enough. We need new life. We need regeneration. We need to be born again. Finally, we come to verse 46 of Matthew 12 and we see our sixth and final stripe, our chevron. We see number six. Jesus outranks our earthly family. Look at these last few verses, starting in verse 46. 
While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, why would Jesus' family want to talk with him? Well, I believe that they were probably worried about him. I mean, you don't call the Pharisees a brood of vipers and get away with it. In fact, according to their list of, of rules and regulations concerning infidels and heretics, the Pharisees could stone someone for such a slander, even though it was true. So Jesus' mother and brother, sensing maybe confrontation, might have wanted to protect him. Now, at this point in time, in, in, in the light of the ministry of Jesus, it's presumed that Joseph, Mary's husband, was dead. And Jesus' immediate family, which, is, uh, which consists of his mother Mary and his half-brothers, whose names are given to us in the next chapter, chapter 13, which consists of James, Joseph, Simon. And interestingly enough, Jesus had a half-brother named Judas, not the same Judas Iscariot. He also had half-sisters. They're not named as well. You know, that was... This totally goes against what I was taught growing up. Growing up, I was taught the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I believe that. I was shocked when I actually came across in God's word that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And think about this. How would you like to be Jesus' brother or sister? My mom always saying to you, why can't you be more like your brother? He always makes his bed, never talks back. Jesus, 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 he does everything right. Well, he is God, you know. You know, maybe that's why it appears from this and other gospel accounts that the immediate family of Jesus did not believe in him until after his death and resurrection. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Scripture tells us on one occasion that they came to Jesus because uh, they thought that he had lost his senses and they were trying to pull him away. They thought that their half-brother had lost it and they were coming to rescue him to get him out of the situation. But, of course, they didn't understand what Jesus' mission was. Now, I need to bring this up as well. If Mary was to be honored, as a Roman Catholic church teaches she should, I am sure that when uh, the, the, the Jesus is told that, that his mother and his brothers are there, that the Jesus would have had the opportunity right then and there to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege and yours to introduce to you my mother and yours, Mary. Give her all honor and glory that you'd give me. He doesn't do that here, does he? No way. Look what Jesus says in verse 48. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then verse 49. And he stretched out his hands towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, Jesus is putting things in order. And reminds us that we have a family of faith that is even stronger than our earthly family. Now, I have found that totally to be true. I love my blood family. You know, my brothers and sisters. But when I came to faith in Christ, man, I had a family in the Lord that, that man, I, I never knew it could be so, I could be so blessed. I mean, the depth and the experience and the bond and love came nothing close to what I had with my own family. Recently, two weeks ago, when I flew out to be with Pastor Dennis, I had to cancel my reservation at the hotel and that I was going to stay at so I could be closer to, to where Dennis's family was staying. And, but I ordered that I reserved the hotel through Priceline. And so they wanted a reason why for my cancellation. So I told them, I says, 
my brother may be having open heart surgery and I, I wanted to be staying with, with my family instead. That's the truth. I, I, I didn't lie. I mean, you know, we are a family. Now, if you have a, a blood brother or sister who also knows the Lord, man, that, that's the best of all. I mean, you've got a spiritual brother and sister. That's awesome. But the bottom line, Jesus says in verse 50, forever it does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that, now, this does not mean that the Lord didn't care for his relatives. He cared for them deeply. In fact, you recall his words from the cross before he died. To, he looked at John and said, John, take care of my mother. But Jesus' point here, and as we, we close, he's saying everyone is welcomed into a close relationship with him. Not just a person who happened to be his half-brother or sister, but to any man, any woman, no matter where you live, what race you are, no matter what your social economic background is, no matter where, what level of intelligence you have, all can come to Christ. All can find rest in Him. As He said in verse 28 and 30 of chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, as we close, Jesus outranks the temple, the Sabbath, the devil, Jonah, Solomon, and our earthly families. It's the greatness of our God. He's our commanding general who loves us. The question is, is he at home in your heart? Is he at home in your heart? You know, maybe you've made some moral changes. Maybe you've tried to turn over a new leaf. Maybe you've tried to be a better person, but yet your problems persist because you haven't got to the root of them. The, the root is the house can be swept, but it's still empty. You need Christ living in your heart. If you've never asked him to come into, into your life, you ought to do so today. Again, you may be a moral person, you may be a religious person, and those are good qualities, but, but if you trust in those things, it's deceptive. Those are very good things that can be good, but it can also be damning because you need Jesus Christ in your life. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you, don't leave here today without making that commitment to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, for your word. God, you are so great. Lord, you are in control of everything in this world, and yet you've chosen to open up our eyes to show us our need for you, that we would come to you in faith, repent of our sins, and have this relationship with you. Father, help us to live knowing, Lord, the power and the authority that you have over everything that comes against us in this world. Lord, all we have to do is look to you, Lord. You are the commander of, of your army. Lord, you are, you are our general. And you've given us marching orders, Lord, to live for you, to stand for you, to keep coming against the enemy, but by the power of your strength and your might, and to bring glory to your name. We pray for that, Lord, and our lives fill us with your spirit. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're yet to invite you in to be their Lord and their Savior. Lord, would they see their need for you this morning and turn from their sin and turn towards you. That's our prayer this morning. We thank you for this time, Lord. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.